Hello and welcome to Chatting Fit. We are on episode 23. We are not slowing down. We are not stopping. On we go. This is the podcast that gives you knowledge and opinions from the world of health and nutrition. And our mission is to get to the truth about health. I'm your host, Finley McLaren. This week, every week, every week going forward and every week in the past. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever get the sense that we're creeping further and further away from the truth about ourselves and our health? We're going down the garden path, ladies and gentlemen. We're moving into another realm. A realm where big governments and big business can tell you what is best for your health. But that seems to be conveniently what's best for their profits and what's best for big government control schemes. It would be really convenient if that lined up with what's best for your health, wouldn't it? Now, we're not gonna go all conspiratorial, but we are going to seek the truth. And I wanted to touch on something that really stood out to me this week about how ludicrous this plant-based drive for food has become. It's being seen as our savior. If we go plant-based, then we're gonna be fine. We'll save the planet by being plant-based. And I, for one, do not believe it. A recent product that's hit the market is plant-based eggs. These are hard-boiled plant-based eggs that are wrapped in plastic. I believe the base is still soy, might even be some tofu in there, and I'm just a bit lost for words. If anyone thinks these sorts of products are gonna save the planet, they need a slap round the face with a hard-boiled plant-based egg. These are an abomination. These are a crime against humanity, a crime against chickens, an appropriation of chicken culture, a mismanagement of chicken identity. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here. We're here in the realm of circus food, and it's being pitched as healthier than real eggs. So today, who better to dispel a few myths about nutrition and health than a man who specializes in it? Dr. Pran Yoganathan is an absolute heavyweight of digestive systems, nutrition, and everything in between. He's a man who needs very little introduction. He's gonna tell you about his history and his expertise shortly. He is not shy about his opinions, and that is what we love on the show. If you haven't already, please do give us a review on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcasting app you're listening on. Please do check out the YouTube channel at Chatting Fit. Anything that helps the show to grow, like a like, a share, a subscribe or a review is massively appreciated by me. So without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Pran Yoganathan. So Pran, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, uh, Finlay. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, could you just open up by telling us a little bit about your background and what you specialize in today? Sure, yeah. So my, my, um, my background's internal uh, medicine, and I've taken a subspecialty interest in internal medicine, which is gastroenterology, which is the study of the human digestive tract, which I guess spanned from, um, from the, the, all the way to the esophagus, which is a food pipe that that takes food from our mouth into our stomach all the way into the large bowel. So it's a, it's a large organ system. In addition with that, there are various organs that feed into the gut or the gastrointestinal tract, and that's the liver, uh, the pancreas, the gallbladder, and so forth. So we, we do tend to have um, some, 
some interest in those organ systems as well. Um, it's a very, it's an, it's an interesting specialty because it's a lot of what we do is objective. Uh, we, we do endoscopies and colonoscopies and procedures such as ERCP, which I myself don't do, but um, I, I do the other procedures. And this allows us to visualize internally what's going on in the gut. In addition to that, um, a lot of my practice when I first started off and, and more recently it's evolved more so that way, I, I was picking up a lot of gut distress for which we couldn't actually find a disease when we did the scope. So it led me into this sort of journey into looking at nutrition and how that might be potentially playing a role um, on, our, on our gastrointestinal tract. It sounds very logical to think that way, but in my industry, believe it or not, Finley, that's not a common um, mindset that what we're eating may or what we're putting into our gut may not be causing the diseases of the gut, which are obviously when you look at it from a reverse engineered perspective, sounds almost ludicrous. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. I've got a great team of um, dietitians and doctors that, that, that work with me. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to change the paradigm within um, the medical system. However, there's many barriers to that. Mm. I mean, that's, that's fascinatingly, you know, prominent at the moment. I mean, we've got so many different people in the media spouting about what we need to eat for our health. You know, we've got vegans on one side, we've got carnivores on the other side, we've got, um, you know, people spouting about paleo, people spouting about fasting, and it, it's incredibly confusing for people who don't have the time to really dig into this stuff. So, I mean, I thought that you'd be the perfect person to ask, you know, what exactly can humans eat? What should we be eating? And what can't we eat? Yeah, sure. That's a broad question, uh, Finley. And um, the thing is, we're, we're, um, if I was to summarise us, we would be a extremely flexible species um, in terms of uh, we can we can go into any environment in any nook and crevice in the world, um, which obviously has different different um, uh, environmental sort of um, factors that 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 that. Um, uh, that concern it and and we can basically fit into that area make mold that area mold our diet to to suit our need uh, I, I think we have to really simplify diet diets broken down into um, uh, division of the three macronutrients which are basically carbohydrates fats and uh, protein I think human beings have uh, evolved to fundamentally access all those three macronutrients in varying degrees depending on geographical location and uh, environmental consideration. So the question of what are humans supposed to eat is a, is a broad one because really we're, we're evolved to dominate the environment wherever we are to extract maximal nutrients. In terms of what are we not supposed to eat, I don't think we're, we're evolved to eat the ultra-processed foods that we see now, the ultra-processed fats, the ultra-processed carbohydrates, and even some of the ultra-processed proteins, um, I don't think we're, we're evolved for that. And certainly when you look at where this world is heading with, with in particular, uh, protein, protein is a very contentious topic as everyone agrees that we need protein, but the people that are in charge keep, keep kind of espousing this message to the public that animal protein is, is problematic, not just for the environment, but for human beings. So over time, the perspective has been warped uh, the perspective has changed, and I think I think the population is fundamentally confused as to what constitutes a normal diet. Um, but you know, I think I would love to see us going back to first principles and stripping things down. If I was to start right at the beginning, four million years ago, we're a fruit eating, 
you know, primate, over time, we adapted to meet those changing environments. We became a scavenger, then we became an apex predator, a hunter, probably primarily carnivorous, you know, when at the, at the era of Homo erectus, um, and then more flexible and omnivorous with the advent of fire and learning how to cook and detoxify vegetables and sprouting and fermenting and all these methods that you can utilize to make vegetables and fruit and grain more accessible. Uh, from a nutrient perspective. And then obviously 10,000 years ago, the advent of uh, the rise of agrarian societies or farming societies changed the entire landscape. So it's not like humans existed and this is our diet. Well, humans have gone through this uh, miraculous journey to be where we are and our digestive tract has evolved um, um, to kind of become flexible over time. We're a flexible species of primate um, specializing in omnivory. I mean, it, th there's a lot to take in there. And, you know, a lot of a lot of those evolutionary processes that have brought us to where we are today. But I'm just curious, you mentioned at the start that you focus a lot of people with, within your clinic have digestive discomfort. And maybe, mm. I mean, I guess we would call that that's IBS, right? Irritable bowel, bowel syndrome. Mm. And mm. So that, that's part of it. Yes. Okay. And, and what do you see is causing that generally in most people? Yeah, it's a look tricky, tricky question. But again, let's let's simplify it. Okay, so we tend to see a lot of people that are consuming processed proteins, right? Like protein powders and so forth. They get a lot of gut distress. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that processed protein in some people is a is an issue. It can cause them to have gut distress. In the same vein, we've got processed carbohydrates as well. Okay, and processed fats, and I think. Anything processed, in particular ultra-processed with all the additives that come with it and all the chemical manipulation and whatnot, um, I think is problematic to the human gastrointestinal tract. But there is also the issue of our gut microbiome, okay? These are, these are the trillions of bacteria that inhabit our gut, that modulate gut function, that allow us to break down fiber and non-digestible carbohydrates such as fiber. This over the last 50 years or possibly even longer, we've seen a diminishing health of the microbiome. So things that historically we could break down with great efficiency, such as non-digestible carbohydrates like fructose and fructans and polyols and whatnot, and fibers, we are less able to break these down because the gut microbiome is fundamentally what constitutes the biggest component of, of the machinery that helps break these foods down. So over time, you, you get these anecdotes like people not tolerating fiber as well. That is not because fiber is not a natural part of our diet. I think fiber, soluble fiber in particular, is a very useful part of our diet. It speaks more to the fact that the human gut microbiome is going through this inter, intergenerational degradation uh, due to various factors, which is making us less able to tolerate these sort of foods. Okay. Okay. I mean, again, there's a lot, a lot to pick out there. So because we're going through this degradation, I mean, you see the degradation as um, what is causing this degradation? I mean, is it, is it introduction of grains? Is it the fact that we had these, these ultra processed foods through the chemicals? Is it, you know, what, what's the main like, driver here? And the second question that goes along with that, why are these ultra processed foods so bad i mean is it specifically the seed oils is it specifically what what is it about them that is that is that is damaging that's a good question okay my my simple take on that is you've got soil health okay the health of the soil that grows the food 
which your animals and plants grow in. Soil, 95% of food is produced in soil. As the soil loses diversity of its microbiome, it carries a gut-like microbiome. It, it, it carries bacteria, fungi, nutrients. It's an ecosystem. As this is degraded, the gut system also degrades, okay? The two can also almost be, be thought of interchangeably. Degradation of soil health leads to degradation of the human gut microbiome. What is degrading soil health? I think to, to, to assess that, you need to look at the way chemical-based agriculture is occurring. We know glyphosate or Roundup is a, is a commonly used pesticide. The use of that is going up by hundreds of thousands of tonnes every year. It's fundamentally an antibiotic. I have no doubt this is playing a role in affecting the diversity of the soil. In addition, it leaches nutrients out of the soil, which means that more fertilizer needs to be put in. It's not just glyphosate. We've got other pesticides that are used. So we're hammering the soil, right? And in addition, we've got this monocrop culture, which is plants go up, harvested, fertilizer goes in, plants go up. And over time, you just like, you're stripping the nutrient out of soil. So this is the issue. This is the fundamental issue that, that the soil health is declining, the quality of the food being generated in these depleted, nutrient depleted, overused soils is poor. So the carbohydrate value of it is up, but the nutrient value of these foods are low. And, and over time, that's translating into what, what human beings are eating. Not only are we getting the chemical um, uh, pesticides ingested with the foods that we're consuming, we're also consuming foods that are, that are really poor diversity uh, with, with uh, depletion of their nutrient profile. And um, some of the foods richest in, in glyphosate or pesticides tend to be the ultra-processed foods, you know, the packeted foods and, mm. and whatnot. Um, I know seed oils are bought up repeatedly and, and they're probably not great for you, to be honest, because again, it goes back to how ultra-processed these things are and very high in things like omega-6 fats and, and, and whatnot, which are easily oxidized in our body, probably damage our mitochondria at a very... Um, quantum level, um, uh, you know, uh, affect the uh, the ability of our uh, mitochondria to produce energy. So really, it's it's um, it's a, it's not one factor; it's a multifaceted attack on 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 the um, on the on the very substance in which our food is grown, right? And that's our soil, and that 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 has been my message that. Uh, poor farming practices and um, uh, farming practices that that focus more on profit and turnover rather than than actual quality of food is to blame. I mean, that's interesting. You should bring that up because so many people focus on the food type rather than the method of production. You know, like a, a cow that's grazing in you know a nice field on grass and is that you know leads a full life on grass. And then it's killed and slaughtered and that meat has a totally different quality than a cow that has just been fed on grain for its whole existence in you know one of these one of these big cattle lots so you get we see it all the time in the media people absolutely chastising meats for being super damaging to the environment while completely conveniently ignoring the huge impact of monoculture agriculture on soil degradation as you say and you know the rest of our you know sustainable farming practices so what do you see as the solution to to that? Uh, it's difficult, Finley. Uh, I actually gave a talk on this recently, a couple of days ago. The population over the last 50 years has been socially engineered 
to believe specific foods like beef, butter and eggs are unhealthy for them. Um, so we've now got a whole generation of people that truly believe this, the vast majority of the population believe this is no longer a health food, but instead a, um, a decadent uh, food type that you enjoy once in a while. Uh, which, 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 um, unfortunately, is going to lead to poor health outcomes because we we know it is a uh, excellent source of nutrition. It, it, but now we've got a whole new, different attack on those type of foods, and that's the uh, argument of uh, climate change. Okay, uh, this is the argument of climate change that somehow uh, farming of cattle or chickens or whatever um, is leading to our planet being destroyed, which which I've got some issues with and got some doubts around. I'm not a climate um, scientist, just a doctor, but but I, I mean, my research doesn't reveal that. In addition, it also ignores regenerative farming practices, which are net positive for the environment, uh, a net carbon sink when done properly. There's no one arguing that factory farming is problematic, um, uh, not just when it comes to uh, crops, but also uh, with with cattle and chickens and so forth. But rather than writing that type of farming off, why not look to methods to improve it uh, with regenerative practices where you're using ruminant animals to manage land and, and sequester carbon and terraform areas um, from sort of really arid places that that nothing can grow to more hospitable areas using using animals. Uh, but the the population's being socially engineered to believe cows are causing climate change, you know, and and uh, this is sadly causing um, uh, lots of our population to to be pushed more towards ultra processed foods as the, as they pursue eco friendly diets, you know, eco friendly diets. Hundred mm. percent. I mean, I can see it happening all over the place. And one of the big arguments of big vegan proponents is that we have more than enough calories on the planet to sustain all human life. We feed all this cattle, we feed all this livestock, you know, soy and all of these different uh, monoculture crops. And their argument is that there's enough protein to sustain them. And we've got far more livestock animals than we do humans. So what's the problem in us living on that, that food and that produce to save those animal lives? What would you say to that argument? Yeah, look, um, this is this is the sustainable sustainability um, uh, argument that that cows are eating grain that humans could be eating. Okay, this is traditionally known as the food versus feed debate. Uh, part of the efficiency equation for for beef is that cattle mainly graze on land that 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 you can't grow crops in, right? So they're fundamentally upcyclers of protein. They are taking plant protein upcycling it and giving it to you in a very digestible form in a nutrient dense um nutrient dense form and um cattle are great at that and they're doing it in areas where you traditionally can't grow crops so they're so efficient right at turning a diet that contains very little or low quality protein into high quality protein right uh, right and 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 so that argument really falls flat just from a scientific perspective mm. so that's that's called the um uh the 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 you know the food versus feed debate it's a very very critical aspect of it the 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 the, the, the grain that the cattle are eating fundamentally upcycles into something that is better for us we need to eat little of that to gain as much nutrient as possible whereas if we were focusing on the grain well you know it is not as nutrient 
uh, available to us. And remember, most grain needs to be ground down. It needs to be turned into flour for us to be able to actually consume it. Um, so it, 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 um, yeah, it's a, it's a very poor argument, Finley. Mm. Mm. And, and when, um, when, uh, we have these, we have many of these vegans like spouting both, both the moralistic viewpoint and that sort of seeps into the media and seeps into the argument. Well, it's not just about, you know, the nutrition and then they divert to, it's about saving the animals lives. And my very novice perspective on that has always been we've always eaten animals there's always been large swathes of grazing animals and and this is not a new this is not a new advent so i mean what, what's your perspective on, on that sort of moralistic view yeah look i mean i i think i think we need to um i need to i think we need to step back and just look at it objectively i think the production of cattle obviously involves killing a cow to, to produce meat for the masses, but you've killed one animal to get a lot of um, uh, nutrition. Whereas that which involves monocrop culture, um, I think the point has been made repeatedly by people other than my, myself that, that, and in fact, research has shown this, that to harvest crops, you're going to have to damage animals that live within this soil and in close proximity to the soil, you know, rabbits, insects, uh, the feed off into, into rivers and so forth, affecting fish. Um, we're, we're, we're killing a large amount of sentient creatures with, with plant-based diets as well. Um, and, and I'd argue, well, what, what makes a cow less important than, than a rabbit? Okay. And, um, and I think that argument needs to be brought up and debated very, very strongly with, with the plant-based um, community uh, so that we can get them to see that, that, that a plant-based diet is not without bloodshed. There is no such thing as a, as a death-free diet. The, 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 something is compromised. Some sentient life has to be compromised to be able to feed human beings that, that we have to accept it. But I, I take offense at the virtuosity um, that those espousing a plant-based diet sometimes take that this is a bloodless diet uh, that that it's just objectively that does not make sense nor is it true yeah i totally agree i totally agree because there's so many facets intertwined with you know people in in london and shoreditch having i mean i'm guilty of it as well having you know avocados on toast with the amount of food miles intertwined and you can actually look at a scale of what is are the biggest drivers of climate change and the biggest drivers of the of these main main planetary issues that we have and it's actually industry is far bigger you know the use of chemical products to make plastics and and all of this other stuff and agriculture actually falls far down the scale so all of this stuff that's being touted as our main issue is you know we, we can go into it another day but it seems to be a diversion for many of the other issues around industry that we have so the other thing I wanted to roll back round to on the science aspect is there are there are two areas that that really get a bad rep, two or three if you count seed oils. But a lot of people seem to be intolerant to lactose and dairy products. A lot of people seem to struggle with gluten and wheat. So could you could you tell us a little bit about why those are two two areas of contention there? Okay, sure. Well, let's let's focus on lactose. Okay, so. Milk consumption by human beings is possibly only six to 8,000 years old, thought to have originated in Northern Europe, brought on by some catastrophic climate 
or, or, or something catastrophic that occurred within their communities. So you've got you've got a race of people that are farmers, okay, that are utilizing cows for plowing and whatnot, and obviously utilizing it for meat. Something catastrophic occurs that necessitates them to seek out milk as a source of nutrition. Now, historically, human beings have the ability to to consume milk, right? But that ability to consume milk is lost as one ages, okay? And in these communities that a few thousand years ago that started drinking milk for whatever environmental um, uh, or for whatever reason, there had to be an ability for these people to increase the ability to break down the milk, the sugar in milk specifically, which is lactose. So these people developed a mutation called lactase permanence, okay, which just meant that the gene for breaking down lactose uh, persisted in these individuals as opposed to historically where it would have switched off after childhood. Basically, well, you're not a baby, you don't need milk anymore, the body just switches that enzyme off, whereas in this people it persisted. So um, that's the reason why some people can tolerate lactose better than others. Often those from a Northern European population can. Now, there is some talk that the pasteurization of milk, modern day milk um, methods may affect the intrinsic um, uh, enzyme that lies in milk, which is lactase. It might diminish it. So when people drink pasteurized milk, they don't have the enzyme that they're consuming with it to be able to break down the lactose. So that's one debate. The second thing is, I wonder whether the cows are bred in such a way where this milk production has higher levels of lactose in it, just by, by virtue of the way the cows are fed and potentially even selected for, because it might give it a sweeter taste, right? So um, there's that that comes into the equation as well. There are many races that have consumed dairy that are lactose intolerant, but they would have utilized the powers of fermentation. So when you, the more you ferment a dairy product, the less lactose it has. So milk tends to contain the highest, yogurt is much lower. And then once you start getting into the cheeses, in, in, in particular the hard cheeses, there's almost no lactose in it. So you'll find that people with a lactose intolerance can tolerate things like hard cheese and butter. Mm. The reason is there's no lactose in them. All of this needs to be differentiated from milk allergies, which some people do carry. Some people do have genuine milk allergies, but that's another story. Okay, so that's the story of milk. Did you did you have any questions on that before we milk, move on? To in, well, I was just intrigued by the fact that if you, the pasteurization process and taking away, you know, killing that enzyme that lives within the unpasteurized milk leaves could leave us, you know, less able to digest the milk. And because a lot of people are speaking now, I mean, we've got Paul Saladino and a lot of the other uh, carnivores in the carnival world talking about um, uh, unpasteurized dairy products. And so it's interesting that, you know, I mean, so, so would you advise that people would try and lean towards unpasteurized dairy products rather than pasteurized? Or is there a trade-off with the potential for bugs? Because we bought pasteurized in, in my knowledge, to 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 kill bug to kill unwanted bugs and to you know go on food safety standards. So what's the trade off with pasteurization and non pasteurization? I think you hit the nail on the head. That that, that there is therein lies a trade off. Uh, I'd be interested to know how many people are actually dying from consumption of raw milk from infection. And I should probably leave it at that. Yeah. So so I won't I won't probe too much, but but I guess there's a trade-off from big business and big industry that is yes. that is benefiting from being able to ship milk further and extend milk's shelf life 
rather than having to be as close to the source. So it's a benefit for them and not necessarily the consumer that we have this pasteurization, but it's sold as a benefit to the consumer because it's safer to drink. Yes, yes. Okay, good. A nodding of the head is all I need there. Yes. <laughs> so so the next thing I wanted to come on because I'm, you know, gl gluten and, and being a celiac is kind of close to home for me. My mom is a celiac and she's always struggled with gluten and she didn't know until she was in her 30s or late thirties that she was celiac. She always had sort of a bit of IBS and struggled, struggled with that. And finally she found out that she was celiac. She cut that out and all of those symptoms went away. So it seemed to be a very trendy thing that's come along gluten intolerance. You know, it's on all the men menus now and it's on like how much is genuine gluten intolerance versus um, fad and what is causing it and anything else that you think is relevant around gluten intolerance. Okay, I think we need to step back here, Finley, and, and ask ourselves how long have humans eaten gluten for? Long time, you know, 16,000 years, maybe even more. You know, even before the advent of farming, I'm sure we were consuming grains um, as, as some form of sustenance, okay? So we've consumed gluten for a long time. A celiac existed in this era where humans have been consuming grain? Um, the answer is yes, but why are the rates so dramatically rising? Why is it that... that this, this product known as gluten is causing this, this enormous spike in, in celiac disease. I mean, you, you just need to know that the incidence and prevalence of this disease has risen multiple fold um, in, the, in, in the last, you know, 50 to 60 years. It has to be more than just gluten, okay? Because gluten's made up a huge part of our diet. We've been eating it for thousands and thousands of years. What I suspect is occurring and gluten is a lectin. There's no doubt that it can enter the, enter the spaces between cells and sort of get into the systemic circulation and whatnot, but it's always done that. Now, why is it that it's causing an issue now? I suspect we have something called leaky gut. And I my proposition and my thought is that the utilization of, of pesticide, in particular glyphosate, which we know is an antibiotic and probably does result in, in some intestinal dysbiosis, which is basically a, an alteration of the gut, is a major player in this. The use of glyphosate in the last 30 years has gone up about 1,300%, wow. right? Wow. Okay, so um, you might look at the graphs of celiac disease and glyphosate use and say, is that really correlation or causation? But at some point, you have to step back and ask yourself the question, is it really the wheat? Uh, sorry, is it really the gluten or is it the wheat? Okay, and that's the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves. What I'm starting to believe is that it, it is probably the quality of the wheat rather rather than the um, than the gluten itself. So back in the day, when, when we had these more sort of or less adulterated forms of wheat and barley's and grains, we were better able to tolerate them, or Absolutely. it was just the absence of this glyphosate. Glyphosate is causing such a problem with um, our microbiome that that's causing us to have many symptoms of allergy and intolerance that i think you're getting closer to what i'm starting to starting to understand that that the 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 damage is within the gut the mm. gut is permeable leaky the internet calls it leaky gut i suppose mm. that's the, that's the term that we can use when you've got leaky gut when you expose your gut to foods that may contain things like gluten it's just much more of a problem not just gluten but you know foods that we classically were able to tolerate decades ago and hundreds and 
thousands of years ago, we're less able to tolerate now. The question that needs to be asked is why is that? And I think it's because the gut is less readily able to do so. The gut is more damaged. What's damaging it? I, I think we have to start looking at chemical-based agriculture and what role that's playing with uh, with our health. And and when you're saying with it, it, the damage caused, you know, there, there's obviously multifaceted stuff, and you're talking about glyphosate, and you're talking about um, you know gluten and these different aspects that can pasteurization. What is it that can can our guts heal from this? What's our time frame of healing, and and what do we need to avoid in order to heal? Mm. Mm, okay. All right. So let's, let's, and part of the answer might be depressing, but I want you to think of an experiment. Okay. And this is a real life experiment that was performed and published recently. I can't recall the journal. They took one generation of mice, okay, exposed them to a lot of glyphosate. Okay. This, these mice didn't really get that sick. They were, they were fine, largely speaking. They were okay. Now, the generation that followed after them, okay, the, the, the children of these mice here, were not exposed to glyphosate, okay? They, were, they had a diet completely free of glyphosate. However, they were sicker than the initial generation. Oh, wow. Okay? But what, what's really scary is the third generation that followed, which, which were the children of these, um, the, the, the second generation, these mice were sicker still without the exposure to glyphosate. As I said, the damage is intergenerational and um, very, very depressing. And, and, and this is why I kind of sometimes make the point that every generation is getting sicker. And that's not just anecdote. I mean, you just have to look around you to know that, that, that disease rates in children are really soaring. Mm. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this? Uh, what, at what point did we start normalizing massive amounts of autoimmune illnesses, cancers in our children. Mm. Um, and we have to look at intergenerational damage. It's depressing. And and when we, it is very depressing. When you said it was going to be depressing, I, I kind of hadn't prepared myself for the intergenerational fuckery that's going on there. But yeah. when you're talking about these mice were getting sicker in the, in the next generation, with what sort of things? Was it sort of, you know, they were less, less resistant All sorts to... Of it, also, just metabolic health, um, cancer rates were, were a lot higher, just general health. And, and we've got to stop separating out disease states, you know, saying autoimmunity, cancer, uh, metabolic disease, diabetes, gout. These, these are all fundamentally the same disease. Mm. It is non-infectious inflammation, and uh, I think the thing that underlies it is probably something called mitochondrial dysfunction uh, on, a, on a very deeper level. It just has different manifestations. So instead of breaking down diseases into its various courses, we've got to start looking at it from a holistic picture. And it's all just part of the same process. Mm. It's, it's uh, damage to our, our internal um, uh, machinery. I mean, the argument, the argument there that I often see sprouted from different individual specialists and different parts of the medical industry is that we are just getting more advanced and we're just finding more. All of these issues still existed, but we're just finding more issues now. So that, so that, 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 that I think is um, absolute arrogance on, on, the, on the part of the medical industry. I call bullshit on that. Um, you know, I think it's a very egocentric view on, on life, okay? This is the inability uh, to see uh, the, the world uh, from a zoomed-out perspective. I, th I think it, is, uh, it speaks to the arrogance of the industry, sadly, 
that 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 is being espoused. Uh, busy states have always existed, but are rising rapidly. It's not because that we've become better at it. Um, of course, we've we've had more technological advancements that means diagnosis better and treatments better. But it still doesn't explain the reasons why why it's increasing. Rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, has always existed, but the rates are markedly higher. People are debilitated by diseases like rheumatoid arthritis to the point they can't walk. Mm. You can't tell me that that wasn't picked up 50 years ago. If a person couldn't walk because of an inflammatory arthritis, it was what it is. But the rates are rising. Okay, the rates are rising dramatically. And as a as a doctor, I'm warning your your viewers this that 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 sort of sentiment is wrong it's grossly incorrect and um it's it's almost uh it's almost offensive yeah yeah i can see that i mean th there was one particular instagram post that i wanted to just ask you about and you don't have to name any names or do anything like that but there was a call to arms and this feeds into what you were saying you know a call to arms to doctors and nurses to take back control from bureaucrats and um, there seems to be something that doctors and nurses are struggling against they don't necessarily have the power that they need I mean, what would you say? What's your main takeaway from that? The, the call to arms. Yeah. So it, medicine, the way I see it, is an art form. Okay. The way it's being practiced at the moment, it's a checklist. Okay. It's tick boxes and uh, protocol driven, and that's fine. Protocols are somewhat protective, but it takes away from personalizing care to every single individual. Okay. We're driven by protocols like the uh, the. Australian Dietary Guidelines, for instance, that, that that we've got to stick to these these guidelines to be able to get people healthy. But sometimes getting people healthy means that you must that that the guidelines might not work for them. You've got to personalise care to them. So my uh, call to arms was that that we don't allow bureaucrats and politicians to to dictate the way we hand out healthcare to our patients. It needs to be done in a way where it's super sensible, personalized, and one-on-one. -on -one. I, I just I want to bring back real medicine to the to to to, to what it used to be, uh, where we can use some non-allopathic methods like nutrition, exercise, sleep, to be able to get people better than than just rely on a drug-centric approach. Which I, I I think I think my method is economically sound. It's it's um, it's something that patients love. A lot of patients love it. Um, and, and I think it's the ethical thing to do. I don't think I don't think the pharmaceutical industries are necessarily our friends. They're out to make profit, and um, and they're so heavily involved with public health and writing protocols. I'm saying, well, let's take some of that back. Let's take some of that power back. Power to the doctors. Power to the nurses. And uh, let's be let's be motivated to mm. deliver personalised care to our patients to get them better mm. um, one on one. So um, it. it it, that, that that that's my call to arms but yeah. you know it's uh very similar i suppose as i was talking i was um reminiscing of, of that tom cruise movie I, I can't remember where he's the sports agent uh, <laughs> do you know the one no i don't i don't know the one so so his thing was less less business more more human-centric type type work i can't remember yeah. the movie it's a fantastic yeah. movie um, and and he was laughed at by his colleagues and eventually lost his job in that industry yeah. Okay, and and that's what it is that, that that we're going through this through this stage in medicine where there's a paradigm shift, or some people are trying to push for a paradigm shift, but the people pushing are in the minority. The majority mm. still want status quo, but status quo is not working. Mm. Status quo is is is, um, is meaning more money is spent on healthcare, but there's less health. 
So when something's not working, you need people to push for a paradigm shift, but the people that push often stick their neck out and often get it chopped off. Um, and, and that's the stage that we're in at the moment that yeah. these practitioners going down a more holistic pathway are potentially drawing the um, the uh, wrath or the or yeah. the focus of our regulatory bodies, which concerns me greatly. I think it's always that that common phrase, isn't it? The first through the door is always the one who gets shot. So there's yeah. always going to be the people who go first and, and push and push the needle, push the needle, but they're the ones who are going to get the most flack and get and get chastised the most. So, you know, I think what you're doing and what you're saying is fantastic. And I think you should keep it up and keep saying it and keep saying it. Um, but naturally it's going to piss off a lot of people who are making a lot of money. And yeah. I, 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 I think one of the main things is that, and, and the pushback I've had from, from doctors and, and, you know, in my own study, I did a master's in nutrition, physical activity and public health. And we were always told to refer to the nice guidelines, NICE guidelines. And they were the guidelines yeah. of how you, you implement health, best health practices. So it's very easy for a doctor to firstly to default to these just guidelines and say, you know, admonished of responsibility. I've done what the guidelines have said. And the second is that, you know, many doctors are trying to get people to exercise and they're trying to get people to change their nutrition and diet, but many people just don't do it. So, I mean, the argument is there that, okay, well, look, if they don't do the diet and they don't do the exercise, you know, I've do the, th the third option is here's this pill, you know, and the pill is better than nothing. So what's the, the argument there is twofold. It's people not putting in the effort to change and doctors perhaps, you know, being at their wits end with not enough time for patients and, you know, not enough energy for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think medicine is a very busy industry and lifestyle coaching and lifestyle management strategies often take many hours, to be honest, um, take time uh, because, you know, again, we've had these years of conditioning people to believe what to eat you know, um, over the last, whatever, 50 years, uh, people have been conditioned how to eat and to kind of help them unlearn this stuff is not straightforward. Uh, you know, it's challenging the, the, the people's illusions of, of what they've built to be real about the environment. When you're breaking down um, factors like that, that, that's shattering a person's perspective of the world. And, and that takes time, you know, that, that, that takes really gentle deconstruction. And, um, and so, yeah, you're right practitioners who've got bills to pay overheads to cover secretaries to to employ uh, we, we're not incentivized to create health and so that translates into a quick word to the patient which is you're going to have to diet and exercise but what does that really mean you know what i mean and and and, um, and the system is just not geared to create health finley and and you're spot on but to think that patients are inherently lazy, I, I I don't know. I disagree with that. I think you spend enough time with someone, you really break down the barriers, you kind of go through some of the psychological stumbling blocks for them that, that might be uh, a barrier in them implementing health behaviours. Eventually, you should get through to most people. I think there are some people, obviously, who would say, look, give me a pill instead. But mm. spend enough time and show enough passion and care most human beings are, are, are willing to um, to change their their health behaviors. They're receptive to to getting better. No one wants to be a slave to the pharmaceutical industrial complex. Mm. Um, everyone kind of detests that idea, but people have just been sold the concept that there's no other option, which which I fundamentally disagree with. Mm. No, I I agree that. I mean, there's it's almost like giving up on the patient before you've given the patient the opportunity to change. So. Well, I mean, 
there is a fundamental factor, a fundamental issue there as well in the level of specialization that we have for doctors, which is that the doctors are specializing in their particular field, but are not necessarily specialists in nutrition. So Mm. in order for them to, to give good advice, they need to have good information themselves. So what's your take on, on the actual basic level of health knowledge for many of the physicians out there? Um, yeah, absolutely. Look, I think um, it's, look, nutrition's, uh, uh, it's not that hard. Um, it's not that hard. You know, it, um, uh, it, it, it's made out to be this really complex field, but I think if you break it down into, it's simply the acquisition of protein, fats, carbohydrates, micronutrients and minerals, it really simplifies things, right? and the ratios um, uh, in in which it's done. So it's not hard. And I think, yes, we can refer it on to nutritionists, but the nutritionists need to be kind of personalizing care, not just following guidelines and ticking off tick boxes. So I think it's up to the doctors to educate them, educate themselves and and improve their, their knowledge in nutrition. I mean, if I've done it, um, I'm sure any of my colleagues are also capable. I'm not, particularly um, different from them, you know, medical doctors, largely speaking, are quite, quite intelligent people and, and they've done well academically to learn nutrition. I don't think it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And especially where, where it's impacting on disease, right? If it's just new, learning nutrition for the kicks of it, that, that's fine. That's not our territory. But if there is disease being generated by poor nutrition, we need to know exactly what's going on in that nutritional um plan that that's contributing to the person's illness mm. yeah and i th- well i think i think that that in lie that there feeds on to the fact that we do have this from, from my view you know a deliberate obfuscation of what is good nutrition and what is causing these issues you know industry funded studies that are leading to more confusion you know i mean you alluded a little bit back in the 50s where, where we had this shift and change and people started to chastise animal products so you know for even many doctors and we saw a little bit in the pandemic and we won't get into you know the ins and outs of the pandemic but a lot of the doctors seem to be getting their information from the mainstream media outlets so there is this sort of a bit of a bit of a you know and I can't blame people because I get lazy with with work as well and I get lazy in life and you know you end up falling into a bit of a routine and and you might not look at all of the you look to these figures of authority to digest the information and give the information to you so it seems to me that we need to be in this constant process of searching for good information and questioning where that information is coming from particularly with this this huge growth in industry funded studies yeah, the conflicts of interest are staggering in, in the fields of nutrition. Um, and in, in nutrition, you've got these people elected to, to make decisions for the entire country. These people, broadly speaking, are core technocrats, okay? These are people that institute expert, uh, expert consensus opinion for the entire population based on best possible evidence. But the problem is we know the evidence is tainted by conflicts of interest. So really public policy, um, I believe, is, is being influenced by, by, by conflicts of interest. And, and we need to lay this stuff bare. We, there's a study recently in 2022 published um, in America where the, the authors of the dietary guidelines have got significant conflicts of interest. vast majority of them do. So I, I, I think we just need, we need disclosure. We need 
openness and we need to allow scientific debate rather than shutting it down and um, and and sort of uh, gagging the uh, scientists that don't necessarily agree with consensus. That's what science is about. But we're in a very worrying stage of humanity's history where, as has happened before, of course, where, where there's uh, significant uh, penalties being opposed or being being um, uh, being laid out for doctors that that may not necessarily agree with expert consensus opinion in inverted mm-hmm. commas. So um, yeah, we're, we're in a very uh, interesting time uh, for the future politically and and um, from a, a scientific perspective as well. And without or you can depress us as much as you want. Where do you see us in in ten years health wise as as nations and as a world? Yeah, look, um, it's. I think, Finley, the the world of health is fracturing into two. I think there are those that will seek out the truth that may not necessarily conform, um, and I think this will make up a small percentage of the population versus the vast majority that will conform. Uh, I'm not saying conformity is is not good. I think conformity is great when when you've got a system that's working well. If you've got a system that is completely broken, burdened by parasitic bureaucracy and technocrats that are that are influenced by conflict of interest, then you've got a society that's not well. And if you're conforming to an ill society, that makes you someone who's um, who's ill, Ill themselves. So um, I think the more creative of, of of our species will seek out methods um, outside of that, but it's going to become increasingly difficult where we're burdened by not just um, tyrannical autocratic type type forces from governance, but uh, we're, we're also uh, burdened by economic inflation, which just means that, that food's becoming increasingly more expensive, especially the good things um, or the more nutritious foods. So the barriers are significant. Um, where do I see ourselves in 10 years? I worry for the for the future of our species. I really do, and I worry for the future of our children because um, if what is being mapped out by by the people in charge is is what's going to unfold, I suspect the obesity rates, the autoimmunity rates, cancer rates, diabetes, all of that, the trajectory will simply continue to keep climbing. Um, I think the pharmaceutical, industrial, agricultural, medical complex will see significant gain. Um, I think those industries will become more and more powerful. And um, what are we left with? We're, we're left with a corporatocracy, which is um, which lies over the top of global governance, governments, and um, we're, we're fundamentally run by by a corporate entity. Who who lies above the corporates? Who knows? Who pulls the strings there? But um, it seems that money seems to be dictating where we're heading as a species. Um, and I think it's worrying, and and I think it's really time to incentivize the general population to ask questions, to support and incentivize, um, to support people that are incentivizing debates, scientific discourse, and um, and really push back against the narrative. Okay, yeah, I I mean I can I see the trajectory that you're talking about here, and you know I for, from you can I, I'll touch on a couple of points, the main points that I think you're alluding to there, which is sort of anti-meat. Um, you know, a movement towards, you know, getting people more away from individuals farming and, and our old agricultural roots and increasing the amount of monocrops um, and a push towards things like 
you know, processed foods and getting people to live on these processed foods, which in turn lead to, you know, a less nutritious diet and everything in between. Is, is there anything that I've missed there that you think is being still pushed or anything that you can touch on to elucidate? No, no I think, I think you've, uh, you're spot on. I think dietary guidelines will be dictated in the future by sustainability, environmental based um, science uh, dictated to by government technocrats um, in a method that is um, extremely autocratic. Um, mm -hmm. You know, te technocracies are generally found in 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 government structures that that are practicing things like communism, and um, I think we stand on the verge of global communism, and um, and that should worry people. I, I don't mean to get too political, uh, Finley, but it all ties into this mm -hmm. whole geopolitical, economic, um, uh, nutrition, science-based perspective that we find ourselves in. And I think the instrument that this will be rolled out with is a impending catastrophic event, which is this uh, concept of climate change. I'm not denying climate change, but I'm saying that will be the instrument that will be used to band all these humans together or, um, um, to, to, to basically roll out a lot of these policies. Much like we saw in the pandemic with with bringing yeah. us together against a common enemy and then yeah. trying to funnel us down a certain route, you know, whether it be Absolutely. with lockdowns or whatever the methodology may be. No, I can, I can see it as well. It was ever thus to, in history to find a common enemy that the people can unite around and then tell them what they can do to unite and to get rid of the enemy. So no, I, I totally, I totally see your, your logic there. And just, we, we've got a couple of minutes left. I just wanted to firstly roll it back round to what do you eat? Because, you know, you're a healthy guy. I see you training on Instagram the whole time. You talk about food, you talk about nutrition. You know, what, what's your nutrition? Uh, my nutrition is pretty simple, uh, Finley. I have a relatively monotonous diet. I see food as a fuel. I don't necessarily um, have um, this this idea that, that food's something to be um, sort of... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's not pleasure to me, and I utilize it as a fuel. I mean, I, obviously, I take pleasure out of eating. I don't mean to mean to say that that there's not an element of hedonism to food, but food is a fuel uh, for me. And what 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 I tend to eat is quality protein, and when I say quality protein, easily digestible protein such as um, meats, fish, eggs, shellfish, um, and uh, I enjoy good quality fats that accompany these protein sources. Okay. Usually animal source protein is always accompanied by some sort of omega-based or PUFA-based fat and um, and also saturated fat, which, which I believe is important for uh, optimal uh, health. Additionally, I enjoy carbohydrates as well. Um, it's just I tailor my carbohydrate intake based on what my... Um, what my activity levels are going to be for, for that week or that day. I tend to enjoy starches like potatoes and sweet potatoes, which my body can more easily digest than, than say, um, heavily fibrous foods that, um, that may not. I enjoy fruit um, and I enjoy, you know, some, some nuts and things like this, but my diet's primarily built around protein and fat with carbohydrate as a supplementation. Often these carbohydrates will bring some soluble fiber which I think keeps my gut nice and flexible. Yeah. And um, and that's what it is. I don't overcomplicate diet. And whatever fruits and vegetables I'm consuming, I try and make sure that it's organic, um, grown properly without, without too much chemical-based agriculture. And whatever protein and fats I'm consuming, I, I, I try and source out uh, things where, where the animals are eating what they're supposed to eat, which is 
a diet that is rich in phytonutrients, where they're grazing on good quality soil without too much um, chemical-based feed, you know. So I tend to avoid the feedlot-based cattle and, mm. and things like that. And if you can source out uh, game meats like venison and goat and so forth, I think all power to you. You're, you're consuming an animal that's living in its natural environment, grazing on on um, uh, plant diversity. Um, so that, that that's a good thing. Hundred percent. And and just rolling it back, I probably should have asked you before I asked you about the food. I just want to know: Do you see a way that we can push back against that technocratic wave that's about to come over us? Uh, it will require us to band together as a population. The problem with the population at the moment is we've got a decadent population. Uh, I think a lot of the economic factors uh, may may contribute. You know, we've had cheap money for the last God knows how long, and um, I think people have become a little bit complacent. Additionally, people have deep addictions to things like their phones and social media and and various other things, gambling, whatnot. So people are distracted. And when you've got a distracted population, the power shift occurs very, very quickly. So how are people going to wake up? People wake up when, when there's starvation. People wake up when there's a uh, direct threat on them or their families. And it's sad that it needs to get to that before we can stage some sort of revolution. But uh, after stage a revolution, when when people are asleep, people don't want to know, people listen to their mainstream media and 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 um, that's who they're listening to. They're listening to their technocrats and and whatnot. Uh, I'm not saying all technocrats are bad. I'm just saying that we should always question what's put in front of us. That that we should never forget that we're we're all intelligent. We're all capable of critical thought. Um, but but we've become lazy and uh, more ways than just physical. We've become mentally very very lazy as well. Interesting. I agree with that. I totally agree. Um, Pran, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to know more about your work and want to find you online and anything sparked their interest today, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, thanks, Billy. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Pran, and um, and I'm on Instagram, Dr. Pran Yoganathan, um, and Facebook as well. I just tend to put out a few blogs. Um, I'm not necessarily selling a product or supplements or my service. Uh, simply my thoughts, um, thoughts there for, for people to see. Some people agree with them. Some people disagree with them. Uh, follow if you want to and, and, and see my train of thought on these issues. Um, and I appreciate you having me on, Finley. It's, uh, it's been lovely to chat to you. You've certainly grilled me on some very difficult things. <laughs> I've enjoyed it here, mate. It's, well, uh, it's, been, it's been great to have you. At, at every point, you've given me a, a, a concrete answer. So that's... Um... You know, all power to you, mate. It's very fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. We'll, we'll, humanity will emerge, Finley. It's not all doom and gloom, but but I think we have to go through some difficult periods in the future to um, redefine what the, whether these models work and uh, we'll have to come up with new models that, that, that allows our species to flourish. And I don't think our species flourishes when, when our mental, spiritual and physical health is decimated, which I think it is now. Uh, I think we, we've, we've got a big revolution coming and, and I'm pretty confident that we'll emerge out of it, whether it's in our lifetime or our children's lifetime, we'll see. That's a reasonably positive note to end on. Fran, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot for your time. And I'll, let's speak again in the future. Definitely, my friend. Lovely to chat.